Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. to the podcast, Michelle Franklin, scientist who is knowledgeable about the dreaded cane toad. How are you going? <laughs> good, good, thank you. The cane toad, for those people who aren't Australians who don't know anything about it, can you describe the cane toad and the issue that it's causing at the moment? Okay, well, my description of the cane toad would be a rather large amphibian that is, in some people's opinions, ugly, but I think it's quite a cool little animal. <laughs> it has the unfortunate habit of killing quite a lot of other animals. So hang on, so it's and a large sh- animal that kills other animals. So it's like a, I'm already picturing something like a small bear or something like that. I'm just thinking a human. Mm. It's a bit smaller, yeah, no. So it's a bit bigger than your average frog. Right. Um, Not monstrously big. Usually brown and a little bit warty and Mm. I guess some would say slimy, but I think they're quite a cool little animal. Are um, they slimy? Like, do they... Well, they live in and around water, so they tend to have stuff on them, Mm. but it's not... From them, they don't like oh, so they don't exude mucus or something. No, well, they do exude poison, but only Ooh. if you really piss them off. Oh, <laughs> we'll have yeah. to get back. It's nice to them; they're they're reasonably okay. Like you could go pick one up and give it a pattern. <laughs> yeah, they're not bad. It's not going to poison you. Okay, so this animal just, just don't lick it. So don't look at it. Okay, no matter what Homer Simpson says, got it. Don't, don't take your science advice from Homer Simpson. That's that's good advice right there. I think that's that's <laughs> if, if people learn anything tonight, that's the one we got we've got to go with. So this this animal is it? It's quite a large. Is it a large amphibian? A large froggy like animal? And I always think it looks it looks like it's quite heavy set. There's something about it. The frogs can look kind of gracile and and quite cute. Yeah. And of to- like the cane toads kind of have that bring it on kind of look about them. They kind of they yeah. Well, they've got the general toad body shape so Mm. they've got like they kind of sit a little bit upright and they've got the big front legs and the short back legs and they they kind of look a little bit like a pit bull or something (laughs) native frogs that that look like that as well so okay it's just that the ones that look like that tend to camouflage really well they go underground or sit in amongst the leaves and you don't really notice the little lumpy brown frogs as much as the cane toads because the cane toads just hop up onto your porch and (laughs) sit under the light and wait for the bugs so and what's their scientific name most people would know them as Bufo marinus, which is right. what they have been for a long time. But recently, the Bufo genus got split into a few others, and the cane toads ended up in Rhinella. So they're Rhinella marina. Oh, right. So that's that's interesting. I, I always thought they were Bufo as well. So Rhinella marina. There you go. Yeah. So th- if you Rhinella. say Bufo, then it's it's the same thing. It's all oh, right. Okay, but, it's, but look, it's technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. <laughs> we always want to go yeah. that. We want to get right. So the Rhinella marina. Got it. Rhinella marina. Rhinella marina. That's fantastic. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Hmm. Don't sounds eat like yes, Don't it's eat really because it sounds like you've whipped it up with a bit of okay. tomato sauce. It's been lovely. <laughs> I, I have actually known people who eat them. There was a bit of a craze when they first arrived in Darwin of trying to monetize them. So some people turned them into tourist statuettes tourist... and stuff. Yeah, those little things <laughs> like knickknacks, freeze dry them, taxidermy. Some people turned them into fertilizer. <laughs> And, yeah, there were a few people who tried, like, skinning the back legs and turning them into food. Oh. How did that go? Yeah. 
Ooh. Well, nobody died, but <laughs> I still need it. Yeah. I'm going I'm to write that in my menu uh, for my restaurant. Come to Gregoire's restaurant. Nobody's died. I was like, oh, that's a. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the next person won't die. I certainly <laughs> will die. Oh, okay. So don't eat... Bufo marinara. Nobody died. (laughs) Well, no person died. So, And they're they're not a native of Australia, are they? No, they come from Central South America sort of area. Yep. And they they were brought in theoretically to be biocontrol for two beetles that were decimating cane crops. Mm -hmm. So that was the Frenchie beetle and the greyback beetle. And the cane toads were brought in to eat them. Mm -hmm. How'd that go? No one knows. They... Oh, the crops didn't improve. Okay. The oh, beetles right. were still around. Yes. Chances are it was a dismal failure, but the research wasn't really done, and then the toads became a problem, and it was just not really handled well. So it's, I've heard the story that they they got brought in to eat these beetles, and it just turned out the frogs were like, or the toads were, well, we don't live in cane. We're not cane we don't, yeah, like, well, we, we don't want to live here. We want to live somewhere else. They didn't put enough effort into looking at other foods. So the, the biocontrols that we use these days, a lot of research goes into what else they will do. So mm. at the moment I'm working on a moth that eats a particular weed. And if that moth escapes into the wild and it can't find that weed, it dies because it can't oh. live on anything else. So that's kind of your ideal so you biocontrol. So you have to make sure there's nothing else it can eat. Is is this an introduced moth? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of biocontrols going on in Australia these days. So a lot of people will have heard of Cactoblastus, the Mm -hmm. the moth that came in to eat the the cactus plants. Yes. Is that the prickly uh, pears? Very successful. Yes. That was around Chinchilla, wasn't it? So Western Western Queensland. Well, it it was all over, really. There was a really successful program. Mm. And the the key factor there is that without the prickly pears, the moths die. So you end up with this balance where there are still prickly pears around, but not too many of them. Mm. So there's a beetle up here that we use called calligrapha, which eats cider plants, which are a problem in the wet season. In the dry season, the cider all dies off and all the calligrapha dies off. So what people have to do is every now and then you'll find a farmer who waters their cider plants to keep them alive so that the beetles survive. Oh, right. Because if all the cider dies back during the dry season... Or the calligrapha dies, and then wet season, you have a big boom in the cider. So you've got to kind of get a balance where there's enough of the problem species to support the biocontrol species. So yeah, the the toads, they didn't put that much effort into, and they just went and ate everything else. So the customs guys at the airport who always give everyone a hard time, there's actually someone above them who can just cruise on up and walk on through with big, like, I imagine, I'm imagining... Black suits, black sunglasses, just going, no, we're bringing this one in. <laughs> you can't stop us. We're bringing this bug in. We're going to release it to Australia. These, all these customs guys just scattering. <laughs> the guy who brought cane toads into Australia back in the 30s, Reginald Montgomery was the guy's name, he brought them in in suitcases packed with straw. <laughs> just kind of packed them in and damped it down a bit. And, yeah, they were fine. They went for a little holiday to... Hawaii on the way and yeah. <laughs> Tell me a grand old time. They obviously like Australia a lot, which is interesting because Australia is normally considered quite a harsh habitat. Like it's a place that not many animals can kind of get a foothold. Cane toads 
the, the legend seems to be like nothing can stop them. They're spreading everywhere. They're out of control. Yeah. What is it about Australia they love so much? I mean, I love Australia, but I haven't turned into millions Australia, of millions. It's the toads. The toads are just amazing animals. They can handle lots of conditions. They can handle lots of stress. Mm-hmm. And they can eat pretty much anything that moves. They can survive <laughs> pretty much anywhere. They're just amazing. Like you think about your average amphibian, like some kind of frog or something small, Mm. they're used as indicator species for habitat damage because they're always the first to suffer. (laughs) If the habitat's not perfect, the frogs all die. Right. Uh, Cane toads don't die. They're They're the the last thing to go. (laughs) Yeah. They're just amazing animals. So you're saying after a nuclear war, there'll be nothing but cockroaches and cane toads. So it'll be the state of origin. Uh, it'll be the state of origin. That's what it'll be. Yeah. I wasn't involved nice in the, the cane-toed nuclear project, so <laughs> I'll tell you what happened there. All I'm right. kind of terrified that that may have happened somewhere. Yeah, that's no, fair enough. Look, End up with Toadzilla. We understand you can't tell us, Michelle. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> that is going to be Highly such classified. a baffling thing for our international listeners. Yes, like, state of origin? Sorry. Yeah, good point. It's a football match between Queensland and New South Wales. Yeah. We're the cane-toads, Queensland, and the, the New South Welsh people. People, other cockroaches, and that was a really clever joke about the end of the world. Clever but localized. Localized, clever. Yeah, but look, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> Sorry, just explaining that to our, to our poor Finnish audience who are like, what? Yes, anyway. So, so the cane toad itself is, does it dominate South America or Central America where it comes from? Is it like we rule here? There are lots of different toads. Most big continents have toads in them. Australia is unusual in that we don't have native toads. So around the world, most big continents have a bunch of frogs and a bunch of toads, and they're all kind of living in a, in a bit of a balance. And, you know, every now and then one of them will become a bit more dominant than the others, but it all kind of works. Mm, mm. But what's happened in Australia is we don't have toads. So when they come to Australia, they look weird to us. Mm. But if you were to get a South American person and they walk around Australia and they see a toad, they'd just be like, oh, yeah, that's just another one of those little brown animals. Like, mm. it's, yeah. It's a common there, thing. There's a variety of them and there's... They're not a big deal because they're just part of the system there. They don't see them as anything gross or, or ugly. They're just another little animal. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of gross, ugly animals in Australia. I'm just going to say that's, you know, we, we, we have a lot of gross, ugly animals in Australia. Uh, not really. Our <laughs> animals are wonderful. Uh, are they? Are they really? I don't know. They're violent little sociopaths, most of them. I'm just putting that out there. Very... Well, yeah, but so are most people, so. Yeah. <laughs> True. Good point. Well, touche. <laughs> the um, so the, the, it's in South America. What you're saying is the toads are kept in check by other toads. Basically, that's that's they're, they're part of an ecosystem. They they're not going. Yeah. To, they're not going to suddenly become the toad because other toads. They're be not. Like, no. Yeah, they're not like a big terrible animal that's going to destroy the world. They're just an animal <laughs> that doesn't belong in Australia. Mm, mm. But, I mean, any system that gets a new animal introduced to it kind of gets messed up for a while and then it settles down to wherever the new normal's going to be. So mm. in some systems, the new normal is a whole bunch of species get wiped out and something dominates. But in Australia, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. What What's happening is... A bunch of animals die and then others of the same species adapt and we reach a new kind of ecological equilibrium where the toad has a place. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, we might have less of some species, we might have more of other species, but eventually it just kind of settles back to wherever it's going to end up. What mechanisms do the toads use to kill other creatures? Uh, Pretty much just 
two mechanisms. One is they eat other creatures and the other one is when they're eaten by them, they have poison. That's the, the most concerning one. Like when they eat other creatures, it's not that much of a problem because frogs eat other creatures and that's mm. always happened here. But the poison is the big thing. So the eggs are poisonous, the tadpoles oh. are poisonous. Oh, really? Oh, so it's not just the, the whole ma- adult frog. Oh, wow. Yeah, so when the eggs are laid, they're highly poisonous. And then <laughs> as they develop over time, the amount of poison in them reduces. Well, the eggs are only eggs for a few days and then they become tadpoles and the tadpoles slowly over time lose their poison until the day they emerge as little metamorph toads Hmm. they have very little poison at all then they start to produce their own so they get their original poison from their mother right and then that runs out and then once they're out on land and being toads they start to produce their own so from the time they become metamorphs their poison load increases until they're adults and they're very poisonous again. So I imagine there are Australian fish who are like, oh, yeah, I'm happy to eat all these frog tadpoles. Yum, Mm. yum, 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 yum. And then they run across the cane toad tadpoles and they're like, oh, God, help. Yeah, and a lot of fish die and a lot of fish don't die. We did some work on fish memory. So there were some fish that would eat a little bit, then they'd feel sick for a while and throw up and then they wouldn't eat it again. And then if they didn't encounter it for a while, they would forget and they'd go back and have another nibble and get sick again. <laughs> right. Stupid and then fish. there were some that just remembered for a long time. So some had really good memories, some had terrible memories. Mm. And it seems to be there's a lot of animals that, can just learn not to go near the toads. The ones that can't learn sometimes it's the ones that just happen to like toads or die. Mm. And then the ones that happen to not like toads survive and breed. And then we have a new ah, evolution of a, okay, yeah. a cane toad resistant. It becomes a new um, pressure, evolutionary pressure. Exactly. Mm. And we've seen a lot of rapid evolution in predator species, like uh, the red belly black snake has developed a smaller head because all the snakes with big heads ate big toads and died. <laughs> And all the snakes oh. with small heads <laughs> couldn't eat the big toads, so they didn't die. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's pretty fast. It's only since the 1930s, so it's been less than well, 80 years or so, and already it's changed yeah. a species, like morphologically it's changed. It's changed a lot of species. That's so amazing. there's morphology, there's behaviour changes. The animals that just tend to go for the small brown animals die, and the animals that tend to go for the furry animals or the, you know, the hopping ones or whatever, the, yep. whatever their search criteria is if they happen to search for something that looks like a toad those ones died and the other ones didn't like you said it's a new evolutionary pressure Mm. i heard that some crows and kookaburras were changing their hunting techniques to Mm. take on toads as well yeah so the most toxic part of the toad is the parotid gland which is that lumpy bit just behind their eyes that's where the poison comes out Mm. so that's where most of the poison is stored so If you eat the rest of them, there's less poison, but most of the birds don't seem to be bothered that much by the poison, possibly because we're so close to Asia and Asia has various toads that also have various poisons that are similar. So if the birds migrate, then they encounter those toxins and they've developed those resistance already. So they either don't go for toads or they 
can handle the poison or whatever. Right. So, well, so most of the birds don't seem to be bothered too much by them. Well, it's sometimes you get some animals that just aren't affected by certain poisons because it's just not going to hurt them. Yeah. So but is, is that part of it as well? Like they just say, oh, well, I can, yeah, eat, I can eat toads until, until my eyes fall out because it's... Yeah, hurt. so there's certain snakes that can just eat lots of them. They tend mm. not to just because they don't taste very good, but <laughs> there are certain snakes that can eat plenty of toads and it doesn't bother them. There are some snakes that can just eat exclusively toads and that's fine. They can just live on that. There's the, the keelback snake. When we were keeping keelbacks in captivity, we would just feed them toads because that was an easy food to <laughs> source for them. And no one's going to get upset with that either. Yeah, they're like, oh, whatever. Okay, so yeah, it was really easy to get ethics to kill a, a toad, getting ethics <laughs> to kill a frog. You know, there's a lot more paperwork than that. That's but, sad, yeah. isn't it? Take my nine iron. <laughs> so, okay, so we've got And they're this... also just really easy to breed. If you want to produce a whole bunch of toads, there's just no effort involved at all. You can just make <laughs> toads whenever you need them. So, yeah. They're not the panda of the toad world, put it that way. Definitely like, not. Oh, if you ever want to actually produce toads, which everybody always laughs when we want to do that, but if you want to do proper controlled science, you need 10,000 tadpoles that are identical, so mm. you need to produce them in the lab. We've got this chemical that we use called leucarin, which I always laughed. I always called it horny toad juice. It's basically <laughs> a hormone. You inject it into the males and they get really horny. Right. You inject it into the females and they ovulate. Nice. So you get a male toad and a female toad, inject them both, chuck them in a bottle, in oh. a bucket. The next morning you've got some fertilized eggs. Wow. So, yeah, you do. So, so basically, <laughs> I, don't even want to, I don't even want to talk about that. I just realized that opened up a very... <laughs> Very strange. You want to know what makes it really awkward, though, What's is that? my father-in-law had <laughs> prostate cancer, and the treatment that they used on him was to inject him with lucrin, <laughs> which is, yeah. Oh, Next no. morning, so lots how of is, fertilized so how eggs. Was, how, was, <laughs> how was his partner, may I ask? <laughs> did, it, um, did it help, <laughs> if I may be so bold? I, I, I suspect that prostate issues may affect that department right, but being right. that it was my in-laws i didn't ask <laughs> fair enough fair enough for science michelle come on for science do a controlled experiment with them it's just like, uh, yeah, take no. a survey i like the idea that they injected both of them dropped them in a bucket and went toad in the hole ah uh, thank you thank you dan Boom. Splat. Okay. Oh, it's on my face. Uh, so oh, actually, speaking of oh. that, do they just ooze the poison out of those glands or can mm. they shoot them? Both. Um, wow. Of course. <laughs> most of the time they just keep it to themselves. They don't let it out at all. So if you come across a toad in your driveway, you can just pick it up and it's not going to poison you. All oh, right. Don't lick it. You said really that do, do you say that, are you it? saying that just to us or do you say it to everyone? Because I'm feeling that like you're stressing to Dan, <laughs> Dan and Greg not to lick toads. I'm uh, just going with the evidence I have. <laughs> I'm just trying to kick my addiction to lead paint. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Keep working down. Yeah. <laughs> but if an animal comes along and bites a cane toad, mm, the actual sneezing action will cause the poison to come out of the, oh. the prodigans on their back. So it will go into the animal's mouth, and that's how most animals die. So that's how dogs get killed by cane toads, is they bite them, and the poison gets squeezed into their mouth. But is it is it the animal um, actually expressing the poison, and, or is it just the pressure of being bitten releases the poison? Well, both can happen. So ah, most right. of the time, pressure of being bitten. But if you seriously mistreat a toad and are really horrible to it, hmm. they can make the... 
the poison squirt out. I don't know, I mean, because I've never done it, but I don't know if it's a conscious decision by the toad to, like, I don't know if they go, all right, I'm going to squirt that guy over there and... and <laughs> Yes, it's you know, shoot children. It. it always seems to be children. I, I don't, I don't want to be horrible to children, but it's always like a child got squirted in the face. And you're like, oh. yeah, the people who get squirted by cane toads are the ones that are killing them. Yeah. So yeah, if enough. you stab it with a pitchfork, it could either be the the physical pressure of the pitchfork hitting the toad, or it could be the stress and then the toad squirting yeah. the poison out. Right. Um, it happened to my <laughs> uncle. Ooh. He he stabbed a toad with a shovel or something. And it squirted, and the poison went straight in his mouth. Oh, and, oh. yeah! Apparently, it, he spent about two hours spitting and washing his mouth out, and he was all right. So, can, but, it, can it be? Can it kill you? Is it strong enough to kill a human? Yeah, being? it's oh. very dangerous. Oh, uh, right. Okay. So that's why she keeps telling us not I, to lick it. Don't lick it. Don't that's, stab it. That's... Well, actually, <laughs> if you want to kill them, stabbing's not so bad because fast. Right. So, yeah. if I have a problem toad that I want to kill, mm. I'll get a shovel and chop its head off but i'll always put sunglasses on so that i don't get poison in my eyes mm-hmm. and i'll always shut my mouth right you look so cool your, your <laughs> well thing is you don't need to kill them it doesn't really help uh. so i don't i just let them go but if you want to kill them that is a good way to do it another good way to do it is to just put them in a bag and put them in the fridge so they fall asleep and then once they're asleep Put them in the freezer. I've heard that before. And that's that's probably that, that's a nicer way. Even though it seems like you're stuck in the cold and the dark, it, it seems like a kind of a horror. Yeah, if someone like... stuck me in the cold and the dark as I died, I don't know if I'd be cool about that. I'd be like, oh, yeah. Great. And you know why that is? Because yeah. you're a mammal ah. and you create your own heat. Yes, I do. And so it's a very painful or, thing. Or supposedly that's what I do. But for but if you get a, a reptile or a frog or anything that is not a mammal and doesn't create heat and put it in the freezer, it's mm. still going to hurt like hell. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah, like, it's not, a, yeah. it's not a kind way to do it. If you put them in the fridge, mm. they'll fall asleep. Oh. I mean, it'll be uncomfortable, but it won't be painful. Yeah, right. But if you put them in the freezer, parts of them will start to freeze, and that will hurt. Oh, oh right. That's, that's a good point. That's, so I, I just so want to jump... Fridge I, first, then freezer. Fridge, then freezer. Fridge, then freezer. I just want to go the, back to the, I want to go back to the idea of, of you with your sunglasses, like CSI style, going... It's the end of the toad for you. And like slam, yeah. It wasn't worth it, was it? That was a, sorry. The reality of it is I see them in my pool. I scoop them out and I chuck them in the bush. Oh, you're a good person. It doesn't make that much difference. Right. Okay, so. Like they're here and. We've got this. Well, that's what I want to bring up. Only psychopaths are killing them because they're jerks. Yeah. (laughs) Also, survival of the cutest. What we want to do is also, I I just want to go. I would say they're jerks. They're people who want to help. (laughs) <laughs> and don't want these horrible animals in their environment. And if killing them helped, I'd be all for it. Go out and kill them. But mm. it's they, whacking day. Like every time they have thirty thousand babies, <laughs> and they're cannibals as well. So the the me- medium sized toads eat the babies. So if you kill all the medium sized toads, you'll actually have more babies. So oh. like the the pressure that's reducing the toad numbers isn't our ability to kill them. It's things like habitat size and food availability and other pressures that, that are keeping their numbers in check. So the, the more that we kill, the more spaces there are for other toads to not die. So actually going out and physically killing them isn't going to reduce the population and it isn't going to slow the invasion. It might help your immediate area for a while. So mm. if you have a particular pond that has, say, an endangered frog in it, you could target that pond and remove adults and that would help in the short term. Mm -hmm. But give it a week and 
your work will be undone. What the best approaches that we're finding are the ones where you target the breeding cycle. So if you can reduce the incidence of breeding, catch the tadpoles, remove the eggs, mm. you can remove tens of thousands of animals from the system in one effort rather than one toad. One toad. Which, that that yeah. can't make a difference. So if you can get the tadpoles or the eggs, that, that's where there's going to be changes happening. So we've got this creature that's poisonous from the egg stage all the way up to the adult stage, and it yep. seems to be inexorably moving south. It started in North Queensland, and it's, it's taking over everything. It's a major disaster, isn't it? That's, that's a major, major problem. It is a big problem. The, the southern movement is actually quite slow. Right. The, the amazingly fast movement is the northwestern movement, and that's where we're actually seeing a new type of selection happening. So this isn't natural selection. This isn't the Darwinian style of selection. This is a new thing that's happening. This hmm. is spatial selection. Oh. So the toads that are going northwest into the northern now ter- it's pretty much west. into the northern territory well, in Western Australia. They're in Western Australia. Now. Oh wow, okay. Yes. So when they first left Queen well when they first left the east coast of Queensland, they were travelling at about ten kilometers per year. Wow. Now over in Western Australia, they're travelling up to sixty kilometers per year. <laughs> and that's not an individual animal, that's hmm. the invasion front is moving that's, super fast. That's amazing. But it's not it's not the same animal that left Queensland. It's an animal that has <laughs> evolved to move. So what's happened is when you think about natural selection, you get a whole lot of different animals. Hmm. And then the evolutionary pressures knock out the ones that don't sit, don't suit that system. The ones that are left are the ones that breed. And then that set of genes is what's left over to become the next generation. So that's yep. sorting according to time. So whoever makes it to the breeding time and then has the skills to find a partner and do what they have to do, mm. those are the ones that breed and reproduce. What's happening here is the animals are getting sorted by distance rather than time. Right. So... The animals that can run the fastest, the animals that do run the fastest, hmm. end up together. Right, yes. So Making um, more fast toads. My boss used to call it the Olympic village effect. So all the fast guys <laughs> together, <laughs> so that's who they breed with. Yes. And, of and course, the ones that are the fastest end up in an environment where there aren't more toads already established. It's just this great big no, empty so space for them to... Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so, the, the, so it, what we're left are toads that have long legs mm-hmm. that tend to run, so their their instinct is to go, go, go. And the important thing is that they have straight lines. So when they travel, they travel in one direction. They don't just wander about and turn corners. They mm. go straight and they go fast. Oh, my goodness. And <laughs> it, it's not evolutionarily advantageous to do this. So these animals have arthritis. They have these horrible backbones that are wrecked. They're probably oh. in a lot of pain. Oh, no. They don't live very long and they cannot compete with the other toads. But mm. because the other toads aren't around, yeah, right. they're the successful. So you end up with these <laughs> toads that are just terrible in terms of evolutionary fitness, mm. but mm. they're successful because of spatial selection. So because <laughs> they're all together, they're the ones that breed. So back in Queensland, you have the original form 
where they have good backbones and they survive well. Mm. They do really well in their environment, but they don't travel. So you end up with this kind of range of toads over the distance. That's amazing. So so in the end, as they reach the coast and they spread out, one day they're going to reach a point where those toads can't go anywhere else because we're an island. So they won't be able to get yep. off. And then they'll be stuffed. They'll, they'll be outcompeted by the slower wave of toads coming up behind them. Uh, and Possibly, uh, yeah. So, Or maybe a whole different species. We might end up, we might end up with the original form everywhere i don't know what's going to happen Mm. there the directionality seems to disappear so when they first arrive they all go northwest and they all go as fast as they can but Mm. given five or ten years that directionality disappears and they just kind of go whichever direction they want so that's not (laughs) a genetic thing that's happening Mm. that's amazing it's coming through from queensland and those ones over in queensland are the the original form where they just wander around a waterhole and breed and make more toads and don't really care what they do. Yeah. Whereas the ones over in Western Australia just run. They're the, spr- they're the sprinters. Okay, so they are. is there a biological control for toads? Could we bring something into Australia to kill toads or at least control the toads in some way? There's a lot of research being done. What we were doing when I was there was looking at pheromones. Mm-hmm. So the the project that I was working on mostly was looking at trapping the tadpoles. And what was really fascinating was that the toxin that kills all the other animals is really attractive to cane toad tadpoles. Mm. So you get a clutch of eggs laid in a pond. If there's already cane toad in there, like tadpoles in there, they will eat it. So that's favoring whoever got there first but it means that they're highly attracted to that smell which is the same as the poison as what's in the eggs it's the same smell so we baited a whole lot of traps using eggs and that was highly successful all the cane toad tadpoles went into them all the native tadpoles stay away because they don't like the poison Mm. so you've got a bait that works on toads and repels natives yes and then we went over to using the actual toxin. So we would actually extract the the poison from adult toads, bait the traps with that, and it was really successful. Right. So that's kind of where they are at the moment. I don't work with them anymore, but they're working on trying to produce a synthetic form of that toxin to use as bait. So you can put that in a tablet and sell it at Bunnings, (laughs) and you can go and trap all the tadpoles that you want. Yes. (laughs) What a great idea. Very, very important fact that goes along with not licking toads is don't milk toads for their toxin because it's you, really, really dangerous. Why would you do that? To create the traps. Oh, like it's right. very successful. Oh, so I that's see. What we did, oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, it's got very it. dangerous and yes. it's not something that you'd want to do regularly. What makes it so, so dangerous? Well, it's really potent toxin. So if you mm. get it in your mouth, you get poisoned by it. If you leave it sitting around and your child comes along and licks it, they die. Right. Yeah. right. It's a very dangerous poison. What you can do if you really want to set a trap is get a dead toad and use that as bait. Wow. It's not as effective and having the meat on the toad could maybe attract some other animals into it, which mm. means you'd be killing animals you don't want to kill. So probably wouldn't kill your children with it. Yeah. That's what yeah, hopefully not. That's yeah, that'd be awful. What's but, the, what what is the poison yeah. it uses? Like what's the what's the toxin? Is it like a, a Oh, a, I couldn't tell you. They they called it bufa toxin. Right. But, um we had another lady who was a biochemist, and right. she did all that. Stuff. I just did the toad parts. <laughs> just the toad bit. That's, that's, uh, wow. So uh, we have to live with toads. That's the way it is. Australia has toads now, and they will never go away. No, unless the only kind of way that you would really wipe them out is with a major biocontrol or possibly um, some kind of bioweapon like a virus. Mm-hmm. But 
nobody's going to do that because of all of the other toad species in the world. Mm, mm. And because toads do belong in some parts of the world. If we created a virus that kills toads, we could wipe out toads. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. I, I was going to say something like, because they give rabbits myxomatosis and that got rid of yeah. a lot of rabbits. Yeah. But, but I suppose... And then the risk there is what if myxomatosis gets to Europe or to America or to mm. wherever. I don't even know where rabbits come from. But mm. Adult rabbits so... at speed. That's where they come from. Uh, yep, yep, I've heard that. Uh, <laughs> they breed like some kind of animal. I'm not too sure what it is, but they yeah, there's no they, good they, simile. They, there's no good simile for rabbits. Rabbits breed just breed really well. Anyway, like a toad, maybe they breed like yeah. toads. There are biocontrols that could work that already exist in Australia. So there's a lungworm called Rabdius that is already here. There's a native form, and there's also a South American form that has come over. Mm-hmm. It's already in the wild, so. Adding it isn't going to increase any risk that isn't already happening. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of research going into whether this this parasite can weaken them. So mm. you, you can come at them from different angles. If you, you have the rabdius that makes them sick and then you add in some pheromones that scare the crap out of them and make them weak and then you add in <laughs> some predators. So like meat ants tend to eat the metamorphs so if you do this uh, in an area with a lot of meat ants or maybe even encourage more meat ants mm. you can basically weaken the toads and then you add in a bunch of trapping so you can remove a lot of the tadpoles there's there's definite ways to reduce the population well fire ants go for anything let's get some more fire ants into the country that'll solve the problem <laughs> mm, mm, mm. possibly not <laughs> okay. Okay. Go, with, go with natives yeah. meat ants are good <laughs> is there anything that we have not asked or anything that you th- you think that we people should know about toads that they, that they don't know it's good. what people can do mm-hmm. if they want to learn about cane toads is go to the website canetoadsinoz.com it's run by Professor Rick Shine, who was my boss when I worked for the University of Sydney, mm-hmm. and he's the the big toad guru, and all of the work <laughs> involved in is done under him. So all of the research that I know about was done by researchers who work for him. So Fantastic. that website is a good place to go to get all your information, and I'll give you a list of the papers that came out of the research that I talked about, and you can. Include that if anyone wants to we have a certainly read. Certainly will. That'd be fair. I just want to be the. I, I one day I want a job where someone calls me the Big Toad Guru. That sounds like the <laughs> best name ever. And and that's anytime I meet that man, I'm just going to have someone to call him. Oh, it's the Big Toad Guru. Oh, bow to the Big Toad Guru. I'll bring him presents. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the name he goes by. Well, it's but too late now. That's it for him. <laughs> He's stuck. It's stuck now. Everyone on the podcast. That's what we're going to call him. Michelle Franklin. Thank you so much for enlightening us about toads. I've actually learned a lot. Most people go, kill them, kill them. And I love the fact that you're like, well, they're here now. We just got to live with them. But we can, you know, we can still work around them if need be. So I think it's a very refreshing way of looking at it. Yeah. One other thing I should mention is those people who are hell-bent on killing the toads, which is fine. Like, if you want to kill a toad, there's no big deal. There's plenty of them and you're not going to cause a problem. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Make sure it's a toad. Especially the people down south. Like, people around Queensland mostly know what a toad looks like, but there are a lot of frogs that look like toads. Mm. In Sydney, a few years back, they had a a campaign where they asked people to call in and report if they had seen toads. They Mm -hmm. got 97 calls. Mm -hmm. Five were toads. Right. 91 were frogs. Uh Uh-huh. One was a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Learn what these animals are. Michelle Franklin, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, there's not really much point sizzling because we're going to get everything really quickly. It's just Let's a quickie. Right down. Don't even sizzle. Let's just go straight for the meat. So, show me your meat. No. We're, no, this shouldn't have been a video. No. <laughs> so, lots of science stuff. Like this week in science for me. Well, not this week. Since last time we chatted, I've been out building, uh, well, not just building, but extending the Murchison Wide Field Array. It's an array telescope sort of in the middle of nowhere in Western Australia, which is sort of the middle of nowhere in Australia, which is the middle of nowhere. Basically, it's the most one of the most isolated places I've ever been, and it was very exciting. And you're just stretching out the lens, making the lens yes. nice and wide. That's, that's, that's basically it. And when you look at it, it kind of looks like a four-legged spider. But imagine hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all placed on the ground and random or quasi-random. Yep, um, I'm imagining like, that, and I'll never yeah. sleep again. <laughs> and it's just spread out across the Western Australian desert, and that allows them to either take long baselines, so long distances between two of the dipoles, they're called, the two like two crossed antennas, and to be, get good resolution so they can see things very clearly, or they can get lots of them all kind of clustered together in one spot and that gives them a very wide view of the sky and i was helping increasing the core adding these hexes so they could get an even wider view of the sky all, this exciting. all of these electronics out in the middle of, of western australia what are they doing it rains ha of course i kid uh, no no it, no it rains a lot it rains <laughs> every does rain the two yeah well, yes yes the two weeks i was out there the it rained nearly well the first week nearly every day and the second week at least once it rains a lot not much um, of a the, desert then well deserts do bloom dan deserts bloom that's what they do it's um, well it's the outback I, I should say people are probably picturing the sahara it's more scrubby scrubs and you know, they're nothing higher than than your sort of hips and uh as in plant wise and yeah basically it's it's all you wouldn't it's my torso hopefully Yes, it's degraded. <laughs> well, it's not when you're bending over to make dipoles. Uh, lots of degraded farmland from 100 years ago when we overuse the land by putting too many cattle on it. So it's got no other use. So now we put telescopes on it, which is kind of cool. So you will be able to look at stuff and you'll be, go, you'll be able to go, I was responsible for that little bit of definition. Absolutely. That's the, well, at least, the, yeah, it's one of those things from when the Murchison Wide Field Array starts doing more science. It's been working now for three years and doing great science already. So I feel that now every time I hear about it saying it's done something cool, I'll go, I had something to do with that. I touched every dipole that, that I helped build, like hundreds of them. And those dipods touched the sky. <laughs> very true. I'm I was very excited. So if you get a chance to have a build a radio telescope, take it because it's back breaking labor, but a lot of fun. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. I, I've never heard those two things in the same sentence. <laughs> What's the address there? The MRO is the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, but uh, that's near Bulardi Station. And What's that's... the street address? There's no street address. What's Bulardi the street name? Sta- there's no street name, Dan. It's the middle of nowhere. It must be hard to find. Like, it must be hard to send stuff to it then. Yes, it would be. Well, you send things to the station, the Bilardi station. But the Bilardi station is like an hour's drive away from the from the telescope. So it's not close. And you're down dirt tracks. So you, you go to Geraldton. So for our listeners, you have Perth, which is the most isolated capital city in the world. And then you drive five hours north to Geraldton. So that's pretty isolated, which is a coastal uh, coastal city, coastal town. And then you go west four hours. So you drive for an hour on Bitumen, and then you drive for three to four hours on dirt tracks. And that gets you to Bellardi Station. Then you drive for another hour to get to the observatory. So if you wanted to find this observatory you probably have to give like a latitude and longitude yes. to figure it out absolutely so what's and that latitude and longitude i'm not going to say because what? not that it's a, not that it's a secret but Do you because... remember it 
No, I don't. <laughs> no, of course you don't. There's like no. 12 digits in yeah. each one. I could, I could look it up very quickly. It's, it's more to the point that people can't go there as tourists. You're not allowed to just go there and talk and then like hang around and see it, which is sad. But it's also useful because it's a radio quiet zone because it's a radio telescope. So they don't want people with CBs or with Bluetooth or, or phones basically putting out lots of signal because that, that swamps the signal. To give you an idea of how, how uh, sensitive this instrument is, I took a DSLR camera out there to take photos of it and that sort of stuff. Yep. It, could, it could detect when I was pressing the shutter on my camera from a meter away. It knew that I was there taking a photo. They could see it on the data. That's how, that's how sensitive this thing is, just the, the radio noise this puts off. I really but, hope that no one at the centre like, falls in love with John Cusack, but then they have a fight. Because like one day they're going to, he's going to be holding the, the boombox above his head, just ruining all that data. And so, well, as long as it, that wouldn't be too bad. What would be really, really bad was if he turned up with a Bluetooth speaker. That would be really, really oh, bad. Right. Because that's because anything that puts out a signal is the problem. Landlines or don't use it, basically. Give you an idea why that's where the SKA is going to be, the square kilometre array. So the, the largest telescope, the radio telescope array in the world is going to get built in the same area. Is there enough and room out there for a square kilometre? Well, it's yeah, <laughs> it's going to be. Remember that square kilometer is spread out over a much wider area. That, that's the collecting area. So that's the. It's as if you had a dish that was a square kilometer across. Oh, but it's. It's going to be okay. hundreds of kilometers. It's going to be two hundred kilometers of, of dipoles and, and across the desert. I did not know that. Yeah, it's huge. I it's just be assumed than... there would just be a great. I don't know what I thought. Just a bunch of aerials sitting in the desert for a square kilometer. Like every oh, couple right. of meters, just a big grid of them. I assumed that was it. No, right, no, no, no. Well, you've well, you've kind of got the right idea, but it's not it's not over a, it's not over a square kilometer. It's over hundreds of kilometers, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. And all little but, bits but in random. Well, sometimes you have the core areas. So in the center, you have the core where they're really de- concentrated, so you can see a wide area of the sky. Then you can have long baselines, so tiles or so antennas a long way away, yeah. and so they're spread out to get more resolution. Yeah, so that's going to be out there. So it's it's going to be it's actually a, a legal thing where you can't make radio noise out there. So you can't put a telecom tower out there or something like that. So better make sure that you don't give out the longitude and latitude. Well, it's not secret. You can look it up. They, our listeners. Can I'm look trying it up. to do a segue to my bit, Greg. Right, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Have I not talked incessantly no, about longitude and latitude long enough? Normally you're much better at segueing, and I always mention it. It's great. See, yes, this is what happens when you're not in the room. You're not picking up on like the subtleties. Yeah, what we start waggling your eyebrows more, Dan. But I'm, I'm doing it, but I'm, I'm I'm doing it to your picture on the middle of the iPad screen, uh, not uh, the uh, camera over right. to the left. I see, uh, right? Uh, yeah, you know, oh, right. Oh, sorry. So segue, segue, segue. Very difficult to memorize a whole bunch of numbers for latitude and longitude. So we use street addresses. So you go, okay, which neighbourhood, which city, which neighbourhood, which street. Oh, and then... so you weren't interested at all in where it was. You, 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 that was just a... Fuck no. <laughs> Fair enough. Jeez, Fair blah, enough. blah, blah. Don't go out there, Dan. I'm going to go out there now just to bugger things up. <laughs> just to make a point. Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, one of them microwave dishes. Just, just bang two rocks together and hope what happens. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, so at the moment you, you find a street... And then you, and then all the houses are numbered, and you go to the right number on the street. Easy, yeah. easy, you would think. But then there are some places, like in Japan, where the numbers don't mean anything. I think that <laughs> I think that the houses are numbered based on when they were built. 
Right. So oh, no, okay. number one sits like in the middle, and then number two was built all the way down the other end, and then number oh. three was all the way up the other end. There's, so, like years later, there's no way of going. Okay, well, how do I find number? F- I'm at number four. How do I get to number eleven? There's no way. It could be anywhere along that road. And then most of the world doesn't have street names. Like if you think about it, that's a huge amount of infrastructure to put up little signs and name all the streets. Yes, and, and, and in the past, I guess it was easier because you just go. It's John John Peterson, you know, the farmer who yeah. lives over there. So, and that, and they go, oh, yeah, we know John Peterson, the farmer, and then off, off you go. But now there's people everywhere. Yeah. So you need Damn to be able it. to find them. So you could have like, are you advocating some kind of plague or a war? Is that what you're doing? That's what it's leading. It hadn't occurred to me, but that would be simpler. <laughs> what happens is we do have latitude and longitude, so you can find a place part on the planet, just go, okay, it's this many amount across and this many down, yeah, and boom, d- dead centre. Really hard to memorise that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a group on the internet who have come up with a site called Three Words. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they've split up the Earth into three by three metre squares. And every square is labelled with three words. Right. So lamp, kettle, so, couch. So roaring red vermilion or something like that. Yep, yep. could be yep. that. Okay. Um, or just, yeah, lamp, table, couch. I'd like to point out, if anyone if anyone actually knows where roaring red vermilion comes from, without Googling it, I will give you, I will purchase for you a Smart Enough to Know Better t-shirt. So you have to be honest, roaring red vermilion, I'm not even going to say what it is, if, if it's a person, a thing. I will say it's from a fictional book. That's all I'm going to say. Hey, go on. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. Yes. You so, and, you'll, and you'll pay for a T-shirt for them? I will buy them a T-shirt. But let's be honest. Yep, and not get onto the internet. Not get on the internet. Roaring. <laughs> Stop it, Dan. I can hear the clicking. Hmm? No, no, no I'm, I'm looking up something else. Stop it. I think I'm going to win a shirt. <laughs> the, uh, oh, it hasn't come up. <laughs> it's going to be hard. God it's damn it. <laughs> All right. Every three by three meter square on the entire face of the planet is represented by a set, an order of three words, which works out. I mean, there's heaps of them, but there's heaps of combinations and it depends on which order. So I decided to key in three words. They are science, comedy, and ignorance. Yay! And figure out where on the planet it is. Now, Earth is two-thirds water. It is. And the rest is over 300 countries. <laughs> yeah. Would you like a single guess as to where science, comedy, and ignorance is? Brisbane. Slap bang in the middle of Canada. Canada! No! Our most hated Canada. No! Oh, Them I... and their niceness. Oh, I hate Canada. Everyone, oh. So basically, we're now some sort of geographically Canadian podcast. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh. But if you listener would like to look, have a look at this, go along to what three words? Three being the numeral. dot com. It's really interesting stuff. Really interesting way of navigating. And so, if you want to send mail to like someone in Mongolia, then you just have to pick those three words, put it on the envelope, send it across. And That'll I think, work. I think Mongolia. Well. It it is going to in Mongolia because they're actually adopting it formally because they don't have street names. No, they, no, they do not. <laughs> so and people are spaced apart like it's crazy. Up, yeah. So hang on. So so if the post person wants to get to where you are, 
then they have to just type in the th- same three words and then look it up on the website and then go there, go to the latitude and longitude or type it into their GPS or something like that. That's right. Oh, I don't think I'll play with this. It's fine. What if there's there lots of naughty words in there? You know, uh, like they, no, they've gotten rid of the rude words and oh. also the homonyms. For rude words? Hmm? Oh, no, anything, anything that sounds like a word, another word. Sounds like, yeah, so they won't have sail and sail. Yes, yes. That, those are two completely different parts of the planet. Okay. But what's, what's, who defines what's rude? Is the word penis rude? <laughs> yes, yes. That's a, I define that. That's right. <laughs> have you ever had a, an ultrasound before? I have not. It is interesting. It's basically, uh, it's like a roll-on deodorant attached to a cable. They smear, like, clear jelly on your body. Nice. Which is my favourite part. Mm. And then they press it up against it, and it bounces little tiny sound waves into you, and Mm. they bounce back off dense stuff. Yes. And you get it back, and you get an image. Yep. Now, uh, they can't see through air-filled organs because they, they kind of need a medium for the sound to go through. If it hits sure. air, it just kind of goes, it just air, air compresses too well and it, it deadens it. Yeah, okay. And so the image just goes, so you just see black on the machine. But you can see organs and tendons and bone surface. Yep. You can't see inside the bone because it bounces off the outside of the bone because the bone's super dense. Yep. Uh, so you need x-rays to look inside bones. It is great for reproductive health because not a yes. lot of bones down there. All squishy babies. stuff. Yep. Full of babies. babies. Yeah, you run right. it over the belly and look at the baby inside, and you can right. have a look at, like, the, the reproductive stuff from outside. You can sort of see a, a big picture of, say, uh, lady parts, but yes. if you want to have, like, a really... Like, you, see, you can see the forest, but if you want to see the trees... So the very specific parts, there's actually a vaginal ultrasound. It looks kind of like a sex toy, but with all the fun taken away from it. Uh, I think you just described nearly every bit of female health equipment in existence, by yeah, the way. Yeah, Like a speculum and that sort oh, of thing. Oh, the metal of... duck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, whack, yeah. Whack. Nothing, nothing fun about any of this. No, no. Says, say, say two men. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't know. You can change the frequency of the sound waves low frequency thing hits an object it comes back and it's sort of a, a foggy pixel a great big yeah. foggy pixel but little sure. tiny 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 ones come back as quite crisp pixels yep okay uh, so you get more information back they use really low power yes. um, because uh, otherwise you would get heating mm-hmm. uh, or cavitation mm, fun yes and you do not want cavitation unless unless you want to do some weight loss Right. So I'd like to introduce Smart Enough Know Better's external ultrasonic assisted liposuction device. Oh, no. Is your liposuction too invasive with scalpels and vacuum hoses? Allow our trained asterisk doctors, double asterisk, (laughs) at Smart Enough Know Better to literally buzz those kilos away. Our cavitating ultrasound devices use a combination of vibratory mechanical energy and thermal energy applied to your subcutaneous fat. (laughs) It will be ruthlessly destroyed and eventually removed naturally from your body. With time, you'll see either the pounds melt away or it will become apparent that it provides no benefit and the FDA were right about their non-approval of the technique. Some injury to peripheral nerves and enhanced danger of blood clots may occur. SE2KB liposuction. It doesn't suck. Triple asterisk. (laughs) This 
is a real thing. I mean, not ours. No, no. I haven't done that. I was about to say, what are you talking about and why wasn't I asked before we started doing this dangerous, dangerous thing? This is a thing that is dangerous, dangerous, and people still do it. Like, this is a real thing, trying to use ultrasounds to, like, break down fat molecules so that the fat molecules will get flushed out of your body. Weird. Doesn't work. No. Doesn't work. No, 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 no. And increased risk of blood clots. Little tiny ones, I think. But you don't want any. It's a really weird thing. So they actually... It's diet stuff. There's so yeah. many weird things that go on. Because people just desperately want to lose weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eat less, move more. <laughs> that seems like too much effort. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather wire myself up to a device that melts my fat. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't want to sound dismissive, but yeah, using more energy and consuming more energy is kind of the answer. Uh, and I know it's harder for some people. I'm not dismissing all that. But, yeah, at the end of the day, that's how it works. I've noticed a direct correlation between putting more stuff in my mouth and not moving much and getting wider. It's, uh, it's Not direct... me. I can it's eat whatever di- I want. I feel rubbish. I'm still a fucking stick. <laughs> I poop could, like I'd... a crazy man, though. I could, I could, make, you, I could make you fat. That, that should be an experiment. Let's get Dan fat. That would be a really interesting one. How many calories would Dan have to consume to become obese? Like The thing is, you'd have to get past the bit where I get, feel full. Like, I'd have to start force-feeding myself. But there are very high-calorie foods. If you only ate high-calorie foods, so it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of mass, Maybe. but it has lots of lots I reckon of I'd get full fast, though. Like, I'd get overwhelmed with richness and go, I can't eat anymore. It, but that's not how it works. You know, it doesn't have to be rich. It just has to be calorific. Calorific! But uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, you, could, you, you just have to eat a lot of more processed things and a lot of, a lot of carbs and that sort of stuff. I eat a lot of carbs. You take time to cook. See, I eat ingredients. I just go to the cupboard, pull some ingredients out, eat them. Right, so it's done. It's yep. thought. There's, there's, there's not much difference between the uh, the chemistry, chemistry, and the action. So I go, I want food. I get food. I eat food. Food done. Okay. You go, I want food. That will take twelve hours to prepare in my warm bath, and and then, and then you have to like put it together and and join it up. You made me sound like I'm cooking it while while naked. <laughs> Well, it's a sous vide. It's a warm. It's a oh, warm bar. Oh, oh, we put the food in a warm bar. Yeah, not you. Gotcha. <laughs> Just sitting there, like peeling carrots. You do not want a carrot peeler and naked testicles anywhere near each other. No, that's this is, this is these are these are two things I unless unless you're preparing testicles, Dan. That's the. Ooh. Why are you so rigid in your food eating? <laughs> Just too rich. I can only eat a pair. <laughs> you have been listening to Dan at Dan's signature signature meal is a motorboat, and it doesn't have nothing. That's that's smart. You can motorboat testicles, can't you? You could. Oh, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to be a little. You really have yeah. to purse your lips, or it gets a oh, really it's big a, testicle. It's a very high frequency motorboat, right? <laughs> so more anyway, like. A, it's it more like a drone or a remote-controlled yeah, aircraft. That's, that's right. Yeah, that's that's true. But look, hey, look, we're we're very open to the stuff on the podcast. So if that's your if that's your uh, if that <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure our listeners regret that they have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Also, Greg at smartenough.org. You could check us out on Twitter, SETKB. And we definitely need more people to get onto us on Facebook and talk to us on Facebook and get back to us on Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Also, iTunes, subscribe. Now, this is very important. I listened to a podcast the other night and they said, oh, it'd be really good if you subscribed to us and like wrote us a review and rated us 
And, yes, yes. Uh, and I went, I'm not going to do that. And then I went, wait, I probably should because I keep begging all our listeners to do it. So you know what? I'm going to go through all the podcasts that I listen to and I'm going to rate them and tell them how good they are because they need it. And I realize that I've got nothing to lose from doing it. Maybe you should do the same thing, listeners. Leading by example. Oh, look at you, Dan. Mm, I am monkey do. <laughs> that came out wrong. <laughs> and as we always like to say... Formula One racing was the first one where it was just like, yep. well, now we just have to nobble the cars because mm. it's just been... Whoever's got the most money wins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good uh, lesson for life, for kids. <laughs> Modern music, man. Kids um, like it. They do, they do. They, Keeps they, the money in circulation. They they're alive. Anyway. <laughs> Now this is music. <laughs> Earth music. <laughs> yes, we are both humans enjoying human music. Human music. <laughs> Two droids trying to bluff each other. Now I'm a weed scientist, which kind of makes me chuckle. <laughs> Strangely enough, we did talk to a uh, scientist today who was an expert on cannabis and addiction. So that's a. So, so that's <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> not that kind of weed. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. <laughs>